This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. Where do you see our world going here in this next 12 months? Does it just all come back to just, just being that light? Yes, I mean, as much as possible. I mean, look, we can always work on ourselves. No matter what's going on in the world, it doesn't have to be depressing. It doesn't have to be horrible. It's important not to take it personally, and it's important not to feel entitled. Those, to me, are big obstacles that we all have. Um, maybe take everything that we believe a bit less seriously and a bit, uh, and, and have more of a willingness to realize every belief I have is conditional and relative. It's not absolutely true. Let me guess, you're an entrepreneur looking for ways to grow your business online. And you've probably tried everything to grow your business, including social media, SEO, even paid ads, only to find out that nothing truly works. So what if I told you that writing a book that goes on to become a bestseller is the magic wand? It's been my dream to empower others through the craft of writing and storytelling. And throughout my life, I came across several mentors who pushed me toward my passion for writing books and helping others to do the same. There is no greater joy than to be working with aspiring authors and to help them establish true credibility within their industry by writing and publishing their first book. Now, you're seeing this video because I just opened enrollment for my new book writing program where I promise to take you from page one to published in 90 days or less. I will be personally working with you to overcome the same fears and obstacles that kept me from pursuing my dreams all of those years. Simply click on the link below to see how I could help you become a first-time best-selling author. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Dr. Michael Hall. You are a clinical psychologist and have been engaged in the practice of psychotherapy with individuals, couples, families, and groups for more than 40 years until largely retiring on Halloween in 2016. After graduating from Vanderbilt University, you completed your doctorate in clinical psychology at Indiana University. You did clinical internships at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, followed by the National Institutes of Mental Health in Washington, D.C., and additional training at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. You began your work in 1975 at the Counseling Center at Binghamton University, and from 1982 until retirement, you were entrenched in your private practice Beginning in June of last year, you focus your time on travel, teaching, and writing, and you recently published your book, Awake and Alive, Being What You Already Are. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Hi, Roger. It's nice to be here. And I have your new book right here, and uh, this is wonderful to hold. 
because okay. I talked to you about a year ago when you were still putting the final pieces yes, together. Yes. So tell us about it. Tell us how it all finished out mm. for you because I know you worked on it for many years. This book um, started being written over maybe 12, 13 years ago. And at that time, I was incredibly busy seeing as many as 50 people a week for an hour each and owning uh, a building, an office building where I, I rent space to therapists. I was managing that and having a relationship and raising my younger son who was still uh, in high school. Now he's uh, in medical school in Chicago. Uh, so it was a super busy time and somehow the book just pushed me to write it is the best way I can say it. It almost felt like I had no choice in the matter. Um, by that I mean it would wake me up at three in the morning and want me to go downstairs and sit at the computer and write. And much of it, uh, the original first draft was written that way, like two to five in the morning or something like that. Because that was the only time I could possibly do it and that's when it would insist that I just get up and go write. And so it really felt like... Um, I wouldn't say involuntary, but because I had to cooperate, but I think many things in life we're really not in charge of. And yet something is moving us in, in the direction that we need to go in. And that something is what I really am most interested in. And it's uh, difficult to describe, but it, to me it can it can be called uh, God or the Holy Spirit or in Zen Buddhist terms, which is my original tradition, uh, um, the no mind or the Buddha mind. Uh, but I think it could easily be called also the mind of Christ or whatever. There's, it's difficult to name, but yet it's real and it has power. And I think when we just cooperate with that movement, that guidance that we're receiving, things go well in life. This took... Uh, and once it was, it was really written uh, by 2010, and I even went to Book Expo of America with a friend of mine who was a, a publisher and uh, was able to talk to uh, major publishers at that time because you can't, you can't just submit something by mail because they get thousands of those. So I, I was able to make a pitch for it, and I got very serious consideration by some major publishers, but um, I knew it wasn't ready, and so... And they, they all turned it down eventually, but they, they took it to heart. They took it seriously, to my surprise, in a way. But um, So 10 years goes by while it's sitting on my computer, uh, roughly 10 years. And then this summer, this past summer, a year ago, uh, I really, really freed up a lot of time and uh, sat down and just rewrote the whole thing, added a lot. And then I was okay with it, hired an editor, and it came out in December. Uh, I'm happy with it. Well, congratulations. And I would like to read a little bit from that in a moment. But before I do, I just yeah. wanted to talk about that that process, uh, that polling of you mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, because I'm also a writer, and my writing coach uh, calls it the creative unconscious. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's a good word that's for That's how it. he introduced it to me. And mm -hmm. I could really relate, because there was a period of time for about five years when I was writing my book of fiction, my novel, where it was just drawing me to write. Mm -hmm. The words were coming, and I don't know, unless uh, maybe people feel this if they're, if they're musicians or artists, mm -hmm. uh, very similarly, but from a writer's perspective, 
I think it's magic. <laughs> it's a good word for it. It feels like that, doesn't it? It does. And I think all of life is like that. I agree, any creative process is certainly like that. Um, but I think when we're open to this guidance I alluded to, um, everything in your life can be run in that way. And I think a key is realizing that in a profound way, we're really not in charge. Um, and a lot of the problems we have in life is because we think we are in charge and should be in charge. But when you look carefully at your life and you look at any big decision you've ever made, um, something else was guiding you, I think. Uh, and I can look back in my own life and see it all the decisions I made, the big ones, like where I went to graduate school, who I married, um, coming to Binghamton. I mean, it seems like I made those decisions, but I'm not so sure that was really how it went. Um, so yeah, it's, it's what makes creative, the creative process enjoyable. And it's also, if you really get familiar with it, and I try to talk about this in my book a lot, and I talk about it in the, in the teaching I do, um, it changes, it's another way of being in the world. It's really a very different way of making decisions and of uh, being productive and of offering whatever you uniquely have to offer to the world. So, not my will, but thy will be done is the way I see it. Yes, and I know much of your work over the past, uh, what was it, 30, 40 years has been in your private practice mm -hmm. helping people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sitting across them from them, I'm sure, very much like this. Yes. And But there's another dimension of you that I'm really interested in, which is, you know, mm -hmm. really in this book. Mm -hmm. And I've had a chance to read some of it uh, from your ebook online, and I'm so glad to be able to hold this. But when we talk about being awake and alive, and I know that's one of your chapters, mm -hmm. And actually, it's in your introduction. I wanted to read, if you don't mind, sure. the first part of your introduction because it's, to me, it's very, very powerful. Mm. We have forgotten who and what we are. The term awakening has become widely used to mean many different and internal experiences. In this book, awakening will refer to an internal perceptual shift that includes the direct experiential realization of who and what you really are and always have been, that which you can't not be. It is a kind of remembrance and recognition of our true nature underneath all social conditioning and programming. This true nature is universal, unchanging, and equally available to all at any time or place. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's just powerful. Well, thank you. It's true. That's how I see it. So, and, you know, that's been, that's been taught in spiritual traditions forever. We're all children of God. We're all children of the Creator. Um, that's a gift that's freely given to us through grace. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but it's real 
Uh, we also can't lose it. Um, we can't give it up. We can't. We can forget it. We can somehow not remember that that's who we truly are. Um, so that's why I call it a remembrance. Uh, and at some level, we all know this. I'm convinced everyone knows this, but we're so distracted uh, by the events of our life and by really our thinking mind, our, what we normally, uh, the content of our mind normally. When people stop, and this is, this is an important spiritual practice, stop and just watch the content of your mind, like what goes through your mind all the time. And anybody who will do this for just a few minutes uh, will begin to notice what goes through their mind is basically a kind of trivia. It's, and it's pretty much the same trivia every day. Um, there's actually been psychological research done on this, and it appears that most of us have about 50 or 60,000 thoughts a day, and we have pretty much the same thoughts every day. So because we're lost in thinking, and not real thinking, but ruminating and obsessing and worrying and fantasizing and daydreaming and um, feeling bad about our memory of the past or are, are fearful about our fantasy of the future, um, because that's how we spend our time. We forget what's ultimately real, what's underneath all of that. So that's what I'm trying to allude to there. And awakening is just, you know, it's described in the New Testament as the scales falling away from the eyes. And it's like waking up from a deep sleep. And you just see, my experience is you just see what's in front of you. But you see it without the filters. You see it directly and immediately and clearly. Um, and it's, it's simply, uh, it's like in awakening, nothing is gained and everything is lost. And by that I mean all of the filters and assumptions and preconceptions that we normally place between our ability to perceive and what we're perceiving, that filter is just dissolved. It just evaporates. And especially, that can be a, a brief glimpse, which it usually is, or it can be abiding. I mean, that filter can just be gone and not come back. And that's what happened to me in 2002. I'd had other experiences, which I would call experiences, because they, they occurred in a period of time, they lasted for a period of time, and then they went away and I was back being myself in the normal way. Um, and I always hoped they wouldn't go away, but they did, until 2002, and then it, it just ended. This, uh, the project, I say, the project of being me just stopped and didn't start up again. And yet, you know, I went back to work. This happened in the middle of the day on a Wednesday, like 10, 10 o'clock or so in the morning. I went home and talked about it for two hours to my, my partner, my girlfriend, and um, went back to work. Like other people, it's very unique and very different for different people, but it's it's part of the whole spiritual lineage of all traditions, I think. And when that happened in 2002, were you reading a book? I was reading a book, David Hawkins' uh, Power Versus Force. Uh, at least that's my sense of it. I had a friend of mine said, well, you had that book open in front of you. I don't think he liked the book. I liked it. I think I was reading it. Um, and it's a, it's a great book, and I highly recommend it. He was a psychiatrist, uh, died maybe five years ago, and a very profound spiritual teacher. Yeah. 
And what what did it say in that book that I don't know. I have stood no idea. Out. I don't know. I don't even know what I don't know what I was reading, but he just he spoke very directly in that book um, about consciousness and spirituality, and I don't know. Who it's hard to say. You know, this can be triggered by anything or nothing. There are many stories in the Zen tradition of. You know, it'll, it'll go something like this monk had been very deeply immersed in, in uh, meditation and then he was out sweeping the patio and he hit a pebble and it flew into a vase and he heard a ping and at that moment he woke up. Um, a, a contemporary spiritual teacher, Adyashanti, talked about being in deep meditation early in the morning and he heard a bird sing and that, that bird singing tripped something in him. So I think it depends on the mind being quiet um, and, and in a way offline. Uh, so and when that happens anything at all can trigger it. So I think uh, for me it just happened to be reading that book but it could be literally anything or nothing when the time is right. Meaning when you're ripe, when you're open, when you're willing, and when your mind is very quiet. Yeah, and you talk about stillness mm -hmm. or silence mm -hmm. versus non-silence. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, stillness to me is, um, is an inner experience that is key to any spiritual growth or progress. Um, and all traditions that I'm familiar with have some way of achieving this. In traditional, say, Catholicism, there's various spiritual practices like the Hail Mary or um, the Our Father or Lectio Divinia, reading, reading scripture, or, or many other practices. Um, and there's a wonderful book by Father Thomas Keating called Intimacy with God, where he goes into the, the deep meaning of all of these different practices. And the gist of his, of his book is that the purpose of all of these practices is to get you to a state of inner stillness and that once you get to that state you don't need to continue the practice. So this is, this is a really um, good accurate statement I think. It's like um, some way or another we need to become en quiet enough inside and by that I don't mean there's no thoughts happening. It's just that the thoughts are not consuming us, that we're not lost in them and that we're not taking them to heart and believing they're important and real because usually they're not. So somehow we have to learn to be silent and most of us don't really do that in any deliberate way. It might happen naturally like walking in the woods or playing with a dog or your child. There's many things that for me when I look back I would say just naturally brought about that state of inner stillness. Um, but it happens in a different way. It's a different experience than our normal way. So a lot of times when it happens it's not recognized as something. It's like the thinking mind is offline. So you can, I believe everybody has experiences like this every day. But we're not taught to notice them and, and appreciate them. Um, but it's a very natural thing that happens all the time for everyone. I'm glad you're talking about this because this is something that I've been wrapped up 
with and in for I would say at least five to ten years, mm-hmm. right? So I feel, you know, once I was aware of it, you could actually get better at this over time. Mm-hmm. You can't just hear, listen to you talk right now, and then all of a sudden say, "Okay, I'm going to have stillness." I don't think it happens like that. I no. think it's practice. I think yeah. it's observing. Mm-hmm. I think it's being really, really aware and present at all times. But I can tell you this, that I have and do every single day experience this stillness and this calm. And, yes. this, and you're able to get past the old you know, a person that had this monkey mind constantly, right. and, and it's a wonderful feeling. It's it just a, wonderful. It's a feeling of surrender. It is surrender. It's letting go. It's basically letting go of the belief that you need to be in control. Um, so when you can let go of that even briefly, then there's kind of an empty, spacious, aware presence that's natural. That's our natural state, right. and it's always here. And the only reason we're not all seeing it and experiencing it and dwelling in it is because we're moment to moment to moment distracting ourselves, doing what we've been taught we should do, which is kind of ruminate and obsess and worry and fantasize and daydream, Um, I think. Because I've been very curious about what is it that prevents us from seeing what is so obvious right in front of us. And uh, I believe it's our addiction to our thinking mind and which is conditioned programmed and um, not to say that there isn't valuable thinking that can go on it's just not usually happening for most of us it happens a lot more that kind of creative productive thinking happens a lot more when the mind becomes quiet then important thoughts will just sort of naturally show up and uh, so it's a it's a it's an interesting issue because when I first tried to convey this understanding to people 16 17 years ago I got a lot of pushback about well isn't creative thinking good of course it is this is about how to have more creative thinking um, by being still by being still and <laughs> it's, by, it's incredible yeah but the less you in a way it's almost like the less you do the better mm-hmm. it's really a non-doing it's not a doing, it's a non-doing. Which opens things up. Which opens and, up all kinds of options and possibilities. And doesn't that extend as well to our relationships, to our conversations, mm-hmm. to our interactions with yeah. others? Right, right. Because I notice that too. Mm-hmm. And yes. look, I'm, it's a lot of work. I'm not saying I'm anywhere near perfect, but um, I catch myself now. So, you know, if, if, if right. my kids do something and, you know, I normally would be very reactive mm-hmm. or I am reactive, I'm like, okay. I just did it again. So yeah. then the next time you try to get better at, at remaining calm, still, and, and being that light instead of... Yeah, or just accepting that you're a human being and none of us are perfect and we're going to all have relapses and you take some... You try to be aware of it You try to, and you take responsibility. And if you've gone really too far, you take responsibility for making amends. And, but that happens to me too. It happens to everybody as far as I know. Um, the key is to not get stuck there. You know, that's, that's part of being a human being, but so is being present, being awake in the world, being, and this does not mean daydreamy or half asleep. This is an alert awareness. 
uh, of really being present. And that's the only way you can truly hear another person or be really able to communicate. Uh, and it's what I think we're all looking for from other people. Um, it's what we look for from our spouse and our friends. And, and yet we often don't know how to provide that. We want it, but because it, when you feel, when you're with someone who's really present, there's a feeling of being heard and of being listened to instead of being reacted to. Um, so that's, that's the ideal state, of course, for me, doing psychotherapy 10 hours a day, five days a week for so many years. You get a lot of practice at it, but I can, also, I can also see I'm certainly imperfect and I miss the boat a lot. But yeah, when you do have an internal reactivity, you try to approach that with compassion for yourself and understanding we're all programmed deeply. Um, but we can also change, so. And would you say that it takes work? Is it, is it hard work? It's a, it's a kind of work. Um, <clears throat> I gave a talk about two or three weeks ago on effort. And it's, it's funny, when I use, I think I started out by saying every time I say that word, I see all the blood go out of people's face. And, and it's not a bad word, it's okay. Effort is, is not bad. <laughs> but if you read any um, spiritual teacher who's, who's clearly uh, uh, got it, uh, they all talk about the need for, for work and effort and discipline and dedication. Um, on the other hand, it's like, what's more important, what's more meaningful, what's more fulfilling? So it is a kind, it cer certainly looks like work because it takes a certain amount of discipline and, mm -hmm. and you have to show up. I mean, you have to either be taught this or exposed to it over and over in some way um, because none of us this is not our this is not what we're naturally encouraged to do in most of our lives I mean we're we're encouraged to be obsessive and ruminative not peaceful and open and present so it is a kind of work but it, it's not I don't know it's the best work what could be more important I would like to just give people an idea I think you're table of contents is just amazing uh, and I can't wait to dive into this more deeply um, chapter one are you dead or alive <laughs> I mean wow that's can you, can yeah. you give us a little bit well of insight about you know you have to this other way of knowing I call it when you are when your mind is quiet and you're open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, say it that way. Um, that other way of knowing is often very direct, and it, it's not, um, uh, it doesn't beat around the bush, so to speak. So when you are really present and open and really here, you notice an awful lot of people aren't. I mean, it's impossible not to see that. In fact, you see it very, very clearly. Um, and most of us, um, are so deeply programmed, it's almost like we're robotic. We don't really, um, we don't realize how completely conditioned um, we are in terms of what we think, what we do, how we feel, our opinions, our beliefs. Um, this is why in, in most traditional spiritual teachings, there's an encouragement to not take any of your own beliefs or opinions seriously. Just 
let them be in abeyance, just let them hang. You don't have to change what you think, but not taking everything you believe quite so much to heart is very beneficial. Because um, when you, and that's another way of saying that is not knowing. And then I say the not knowing is the place to be. The mind that knows is closed because it thinks it knows. The mind that doesn't know is open to new possibilities and potential. So I like to talk about dwelling in the not knowing. You just allow yourself not to know. Uh, that's the best place possible. I like that. So you're basically saying here, if you're if you're not awake, mm -hmm. then you're dead. Well, basically, that's true. <laughs> I guess maybe instead of dead, you could say you're deeply programmed right. and somewhat robotic. But it's kind of like being dead because you're not really living out your potential as a it, human being. And that's where I wanted to go next. Is mm -hmm. okay when you're alive. Mm -hmm. what, how does that change life? How? You know, it makes you probably um, more unpredictable because uh, if you're a programmed robot, you're very predictable. And people who know you know exactly what you think and how you're going to react pretty much. Um, whereas if you're open and present and being guided by this other way of being in the world, you don't know what you're going to do next either. It's like, I'm not in charge of this. It's like, um, so it's like you're spontaneous, and I would say unpredictable, and much more comfortable with the unknown, uh, no matter what the situation is. There's also, all I can say is a kind of intuitive knowing that shows up of its own, that you're not in charge of, that you don't do, but. Like, I will just know things I have no way of knowing. And, and it's not, we all do this. I mean, this is not unique to me. This is not unique to people who are awake. We're all awake. We just don't notice it and we haven't cultivated it. Um, but it's fun to be like this because a lot of things you just know somehow through some other way of knowing. I, I call it the other way of knowing. Um, you know stuff that you couldn't know. And if it's important to know, you will know it. It'll show up. So it's like you don't have to worry that you're missing out or you're missing things you should be doing. It's like this guidance, when you're totally surrendered to it, shows up exactly in the right moment um, and provides you with exactly what you need. We're always taken care of. We're always looked after. You know. Um, it's said that uh, God can, knows the number of hairs on your head, um, and this is this is true. We're, we're protected and, and sheltered and nourished in ways that uh, are very difficult to overstate. And um, and when you know that, like you know, you have two hands, it just changes your way of being in the world. It's very difficult to get either frightened or worried. Um, so this whole COVID thing has been an interesting experience for me. I, I you know, I, I see how frightened most people are, which I understand totally. I can't say that I felt frightened, I, but I have taken the reasonable precautions that we're encouraged to take. Um, but if, if you look at it objectively, you realize that being afraid doesn't help you in any way whatsoever. It just makes you... Um, anxious and anxiety constricts your vision and your ability to see clearly what's in front of you. So 
you know, there's no need for fear or, or even anxiety, but I, I get it. But if you think you're in control, then you might be fearful and anxious because you're afraid you're going to make a mistake, you're going to do the wrong thing. Um, I just listen to sort of what the acknowledged experts say and try to do that, but um, we're really not in charge in the way we think we are. Therefore, we don't have to feel guilty about what we did or didn't do or, or ashamed. Or, and it's like if someone, you know, I wrote an article about this a few months ago, it's like people were like acting as if if they got COVID, they had failed. Hmm. It's a virus, you know, we get, you know, nobody ever felt guilty or ashamed of getting the flu, but it's just, this is a natural phenomena. Um, and, you know, we look to public health experts to guide us and you do that and then you don't worry about it. If it happens, it happens. I mean, really and truly, it's God's will then. Um, we take, we do what we can, and then we let go and let God, as they say in AA. What's your perspective on what the media is doing, um, the fear, you know, that's being instilled? Um, is that, is that dividing people even further? Well, there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of division, right? I mean, you can't, you can't miss it. And, um, I think it's, that's mainly because people are frightened and they, and they feel vulnerable and they feel insecure and they don't know who to trust, who to listen to. Um, and at the same time, we've all lost a lot of comfortable and familiar routines, you know, things that we would have enjoyed and that would have been fulfilling, have been prohibited to us. Um, so there's been so much fear and yet and at the same time a lot of loss because and a lot of people have lost financial security I mean a lot of people it's been buffered a bit by um, the federal government's willingness to print money and I'm glad about that but on the other hand um, you know there's just so much unknown but that doesn't mean we have to be frightened or anxious, but I think a lot of the division is because people have gotten very frightened and don't know what to do. And at the same time, there's a lot of kind of hidden grieving going on, I think. Because I could feel it myself, you know, when I couldn't do the things that I would naturally do to restore my energy, like go out to eat as something simple or see friends. Um, and, you know, it, there's been a lot of loneliness and isolation imposed, a lot of kind of destruction of social networks. So it's in a remarkable time and an amazing challenge. And I, I understand why people are frightened, but I think a lot of the division is, is not really the media's fault. I don't know that I can say it's anybody's fault. It's just that we've met a challenge that we haven't met before. You know, I've been along, alive here for a long time and I've never seen anything remotely like this. And I don't think anybody else has either, so. It's a big challenge with a lot already having been lost in terms of financial security for many people and, and the routines that have been taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read somewhere when I was doing my research that um, you, were, you were once afraid to talk about this kind of thing publicly. Yeah. Yes. Well, I had, uh, I would say, a severe public speaking anxiety. Uh, 
Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, and just in general, like it sounded like I read that you would talk in your inner circles about. Oh yeah. About this. Well, I'm but... a I'm a clinical psychologist, mm -hmm. you know, and um, this is sort of off the beaten tracks, you know. <laughs> this is uh, maybe an unusual perspective for someone like myself, but um, I learned to just tell the truth. Just you know, I started conveying this uh, material, actually at Broome Community College. I was asked to do evening courses there, non-credit evening courses. And I started doing them around maybe 2004 or something like that. And I had, I did have a severe public speaking anxiety at the time, which I'd had for years. And when I st first, the, I remember the very first time I gave a talk at BCC about this kind of material, um, I, I still had that kind of fear. So what I learned in that talk, in the first few minutes of that talk, was to let go and let God and surrender and just let awareness speak through me. So I'm really a voice box in a way. In fact, when this first happened to me, I woke up every morning and I started saying spontaneously, and I never heard this, I never had read this, but it was like a prayer, Lord use me as an instrument of your will. I have no will of my own. And years later, I came across the prayer of St. Francis, and I think that's, that's where that came from. I don't remember ever reading it. I, you know, I wasn't a big attender of church services, but it just came from nowhere. And that's, so I would say that out loud, Lord, use me as an instrument of your will. So all the anxiety disappeared when I did that, when I just said, look, you know, I'm put here by the Holy Spirit. It's going to speak. I'm just an instrument. I'm a voice box. And I got out of the way, essentially, let it speak freely through me, and voila, no more anxiety. And that is similar. When, a few minutes ago, we talked about this supportive and protective presence that when we surrender our will to the will of God and really are allowing the, this guidance to come freely through us, we have nothing to be afraid of. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be concerned about. So when I first started teaching at BCC, I over-prepared everything. Um, so I would do PowerPoint presentations. And I mean, I learned PowerPoint in order to do that. And, and then one night, maybe a year into, the, maybe I'd taught three or four courses, I, I showed up. And I got big, I, big uh, groups of people would sign up for these courses. And uh, so I have a, an amphitheater type room and a, and a computer and the computer's dead. So my PowerPoint presentations aren't gonna work. And so I called, um, you know, for their technical people, they, can, they can't fix it. So I thought, whatever, that's fine. So I just gave a talk without relying on my PowerPoint presentation. It went totally fine and I've never done it. I've never, in, in most ways I would say I've never prepared a talk since. I'll do a little reading. I'll have an idea that is important to me or that I think is interesting to people. That'll be about, like, you know, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I talked about, well, I talked about fear um, or effort. And I'll have a general theme, and that's about it. I'll do a little reading around that. But, you know, so that fear of telling the truth went away. Just being yourself. Just being myself. Trusting it, trusting a what? Trusting God, trusting the Holy Spirit, trusting the no mind, letting go and letting God is the best way I can say it. And so there's never been a moment of discomfort 
since then. Michael, what are we supposed to do as friends, relatives, um, when we when we see others in our circle that are not awake? Well, is, is it our role to do anything? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not our role. I don't think so. Our role is always to work on ourselves, to okay. turn inward and see. You know, as Jesus says, you know, look at, look for the moat in your own eye instead of the moat in your neighbor's eye. Um, that's good advice, obviously. It's like, keep working on yourself. Um, I would say most people most of the time are not awake or not present or not, not open or not really grounded in reality. So consequently, they're not really seeing you or anything else accurately or objectively. That can be painful and disappointing in a way, but it's also just the nature of things and it doesn't have to be uh, deeply distressing. You do, you do become more um, both humble in terms of what you know you're able to do and also more um, accepting of people, just being who they are. They don't have to be different. There's nothing wrong with the way they are. It's certainly not my job to fix or correct or improve them. Uh, I, in fact, I can't do that. What I can do is keep noticing my own glitches, you know, the places where I get triggered or uh, reactive or impatient or irritable, um, or when I take things personally. The more accurately you see all this, the more you realize people are just being who they are, who they're programmed to be. Um, if they like you, that, that isn't necessarily good. If they don't like you, that's not necessarily bad. It's just, it's just really programming. So the idea of not taking things personally is a key idea. It's just enormously valuable and important for people to begin to get. But no, it's not my, it's my job is to love them and to be present for them. And they have to do what they have to do. And it's all somehow being guided by the, the divine presence in the world. So, um, and I certainly don't know why things are going on the way they are, uh, but I can be open and present to the pain and suffering and, and joy and pl playfulness and, um, and participate in it. But the best thing I can do is work on myself, for sure. Great advice. I've always thought about that. Mm -hmm. um, when you're speaking to someone in, in it just seems like they're so far away. Well, the, you know, the, in a way, uh, nobody needs us to change them. Um, they're a child of God the same way you and I are. And um, it, it, I mean, humility of the deepest sort is always a good idea. <laughs> it doesn't mean, you know, when awareness is speaking through me, then I trust that. But uh, you know, one of my, my original uh, Buddhist teacher once said, if I do it, it's going to get messed up and be imperfect. If I don't do it, it'll be perfect. <laughs> and I, when I first heard this 35 years ago, I had no idea what he was talking about. But eventually I came to see, um, essentially, if it's my will, then it's not going to be, it might be fairly good, but that's about it. If it's the will of God and I'm just an instrument, it's going to be as good as it could possibly be. It's going to be perfect. That's great. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So learning that is the yes. key. Learning to let go and let God. Learning to get out of the way 
and learning to see what's in front of you. And, and that's that's what I mean by spiritual awakening. And there's no need to control or try to orchestrate well, really, or direct. You, you know, in a way, we like say, if I wanted to go to France, I have to plan that, you know. So planning, yes. Micromanaging, controlling, no. Um, yeah, so this uh, context is important, but I would say when you're trying to control yourself or anybody else, you're creating trouble, and it doesn't need to be there. Um, and most people just are going to reject or resent or oppose your efforts to change them or improve them or fix them or do anything to them. Or if you're just open to them and willing to join them wherever they are, then everyone likes that because that's what we're all looking for. We're all the same underneath. We're all human beings who want to be loved and accepted. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.